0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. This presentation is delivered by the Stanford Center for Professional Development, providing graduate-level education to working professionals online, on campus, and on site. For more information, please visit study.stanford.edu. Norm Jopi is here from Hewlett-Packard, and he'll be talking about high-performance microprocessors. He has a PhD from Stanford in electrical engineering. He worked under Hennessy, who I'm sure all of you know, (laughs) and was an original architect and designer of the MIPS processor before it became a company while it was Stanford Research. Then he went and worked at DEC and was a principal architect and lead designer for different processors there. And now he is currently working at HP Labs as a fellow and director Of the Advanced Architecture Lab. The talk he's giving today is actually an updated version of a micro 2005 keynote speech. So, just to let you know that that's where some of the content came from, and it's been updated for the current times. So, please welcome Norm Jopi.
1: Thanks, Eileen. So, uh, is my mic okay? Yes. Okay, great. Okay, so let me give you a brief overview of the talk Um, first I'm going to be talking you know I've got evolution in the title so why and when of evolution Um, some environmental constraints that shape that evolution Um, what is called the power wall these days some things that important about power from the transistor to the data center that we're working on Um, if I have time um, I'm going to talk about the evolution of computer architecture ideas um, which is kind of my own pet Theory, and then wrap up so if you have any point of information questions uh, keeping in in mind the interactive desired nature of the lecture just um, ask me if you've got longer questions um, maybe we can save them for the end okay so anytime I um, give a talk about my own thinking I, I have this disclaimer so these views are mine not necessarily those of HP And I'm reminded of uh, a saying of Samuel Goldwyn, who um, was one of the founders of MGM Studios. There's about 30 quotes kind of in this flavor. Uh, This one is, uh, never make forecasts, especially about the future. So I'm going to disregard that advice, because it's more fun. So why evolution? Well, evolution is a very efficient way of building new things. So it does a lot of reuse and recycling, a minimum of new stuff. And it's much easier than revolution. If you think about evolution in terms of biology, uh, you can categorize um, evolution to eras and periods. You know, the age of the dinosaurs um, being right here, um, my middle son's favorite age. Um, and um, they're characterized by different, um, you know, characteristics of biology. So technology is, is a lot like that. There's usually evolution and that revolution, although every once in a while you, you know, there is a revolution. Many revolutionary technologies have had a bad history. So, um, in the late '70s, there was this thing called bubble memories with magnetic domains. They didn't really go anywhere. There was Josephson junctions. That was kind of a very long gestation period. It didn't go anywhere. Gallium arsenide for digital logic. Anything but Ethernet. Um, So, uh, in general, uh, there's a lot of pressure to be evolutionary instead of revolutionary, and what's been the key thing driving this evolution in the industry well it's really been Moore's law so I'm sure you're all familiar with that it was originally presented in 1965 when he had only about three data points or four data points and uh, originally he said it was gonna be a a doubling every year but it really works out closer to be something like this 1.59 for the base Um, it was elaborated on by Denard of IBM in 1974 uh, which was classical scaling theory and so the classical scaling theory said with every feature size scaling of N, you'd get order N squared transistors, and they'd run order N times faster. There's a lot of other details in the scaling theory about what would happen to gate oxides, um, supply voltages, and all that kind of stuff, but we're just going to focus on those two things today. Um, and then Moore subsequently proposed uh, the design his design law and his fab law, and we'll be mentioning that in a little bit. Something that I've come up with um, in terms of categorizing the evolution of the industry is uh, microprocessor efficiency ears. And so, if you just take Moore's law, kind of the base, you know, level um, with Denard's elaboration, you should get with a feature size scaling of n um, order n squared transistors and a speed up of n, so an overall cu- uh, improvement of n cubed in computational capability. So, um, just like most things that, um, that are physical phenomena, there's some saturation involved. Uh, Gordon Moore, another one of his quotes is, no exponential is forever. Um, but even given the exponential driving of transistors um, and, and speeds, we're seeing a saturation in, in computer performance, single core performance. So um, m- My um, position is that originally we had an n cubed era, then there was n squared era, an n to the one era, and then Um, Luckily we didn't get this far. And I'll be explaining uh, that in the next couple of slides. So in the n-cubed era, we were getting a factor of n from device speed and n-squared from transistor count. And I categorized this as roughly being from the 4004 to the 386 generations. I'm using the Intel processors here just because people are most familiar with with those technologies. Um, But it applied to other manufacturers processors as well. What did we see in that era? Well, we saw the expansion of data path widths from from four bits to 32 bits. We saw implementation of basic pipelining. Um, there was hardware support for complex operations. Uh, the 386 math coprocessor, um, like floating point multiply, they even added more complex things, but we won't go there. Memory range and uh, virtual memory was greatly ex- you know the memory range was greatly expanded and virtual memory was added. So. <coughs> it's hard to measure performance in this year. Some people, um, when they plotted out graphs of performance over this, this range, um, come up with a, a, a not too much increase in performance um, because they basically just use MIPS, and MIPS they basically tie to the clock frequency. And the clock frequency, remember, was only going as order n, okay, roughly. Um, so, uh, what's a more interesting question Um, would be something like how many 4-bit ops in a 4004 are required to generate a 64-bit floating-point multiply result to the IEEE standard. So uh, this is the audience participation um, time. So how many people think it's less than 300? Raise your hand. Okay. Less than a thousand? Okay. well, you guys are much better than the, the micro keynote, and you're not even in the architecture community, so I'm very proud of you. Um, it's actually more than 1,500, and so this is something that's not factored in when you just compare the clock rate of the 4,004 to the clock rate of the 386. <coughs> okay, the N-squared era, I- what I think of it is, is roughly from the 486 through the Pentium 3-4 generation, kind of ending at the 3. We saw a factor of n from device speed, um, but we we're only getting a factor of n from the N squared transistors. And, and why was this happening? Well, if you look at that era, we started having on-chip caches and they kept getting bigger and bigger. and it's fairly well known that uh, you know, the miss rate basically halves as you quadruple a cache size. So there we're kind of getting the kind of square root you know we get n squared transistors in and we're only getting n improvement. Similarly, with superscalar issue, we saw an increase to four-way issue machines. Um, maybe you'd get a 2x performance increase on a good day from that. Depends how deeply you were pipelined. Um, pipelining, you get diminishing returns. We saw, uh, you know, a huge number of pipe stages in the Pentium 4 generation. Okay, so the N era, uh, which actually wasn't very um, uh, economically viable. Um, um, you would be getting a factor of n from device frequency, but basically nothing from the additional transistors. And um, this basically covers a lot of academic proposals for very wide-issue machines, like 8-issue machines. And there was an 8-issue machine being designed inside Digital Equipment Corporation and later uh, acquired by Compaq called EV8, um, which was the uh, fourth generation alpha. And so the problem with the very wide-issue machine was that it was little help to many applications because they didn't have that much instruction level parallelism. And it needed simultaneous multi-threading. so it needed to be running multiple threads to justify that issue with. Um, The problem was that basically the structures in in EV8 were so large um, that they were inherently slower in terms of of fan-out-of-four-gate delays um, than the previous generation. So, for example, the load-store queue in EV8 was better was bigger than the entire processor on the same order of of EV6. So um, that's a big problem. When you do that, a lot of the structure sizes, the structures slow down. You've got very long global wires to communicate from one unit to another. And the time to market can increase dramatically, in some cases, to infinity. So um, let's look at environmental constraints that shape evolution for a little bit. There are several categories first we've got um, technology scaling things like economics devices and voltage scaling and then we've got system-level constraints like power so one of others one of the other laws that Gordon Moore came up with is, uh was his fab law and he said this um, about 15 years after his original law I believe that the fab cost basically scales is roughly one over the feature size and today, a new 65-nanometer full-size fab um, costs more than $2 billion. Depending on who you're talking to and what article and stuff, it can be anywhere from 4 to $5 billion. There's a lot of f- you can get a 60-nanometer fab for less than that if you reuse an existing fab that was designed uh, to be upward uh, upgradeable. And so a few companies can afford them by themselves. So we've been seeing a lot of fabless startups, um, a lot of fab partnerships and large uh, foundries being successful. But uh, as far as the economic driver behind all this, uh, the number of transistor scales is 1 over the feature size squared. And so each transistor is still getting cheaper, even though we're paying an order n more as as we scale down. And the transistors are still getting faster. So we're still getting a factor of n squared uh, economically. The other uh, law that Gordon Moore had was the design law. So here he said that the number of designers um, goes roughly as one over the feature size. And uh, just some recent check of this, the 4004 had four design, uh, had three designers and was a 10 micron technology. And um, 90 nanometer microprocessors, of course, it's very, very confidential exactly how many people are working on one, but when you include um, you know, doing all the, the test, analysis, uh, all that other stuff, it's easily 300 designers. So that still seems to be holding. So the implication there is as we scale technologies, the design cost becomes very large. And um, so we've seen a consolidation in the number of viable microprocessors. Uh, of course, you know, even with the fab um, cost, that's been helping, too. And there's a lot of push to reuse the cores. And so um, have small derivatives of previous cores to make make new cores, because it's too much work to design them from scratch. Um, uh, this was pretty successful until just recently um, in deep submicron technologies um, uh, there's a lot of changes because the technology isn't scaling so ideally anymore and so shrinking and tweaking is more difficult okay in terms of devices transistors have you know historically gotten faster according to the feature size um, but the recent thing that's been happening is they've been getting much leakier because the gate oxide uh, that we've been seeing have been only um, several atoms thick um, so uh, there's been some proposals to fix this um, like high k gate dielectrics and the industry thought that they were in pretty good shape a couple years ago but there's been um, reliability issues and other things with with that so that's still kind of um, um, in, in progress working on that and we've also um, had a lot of uh, channel leakage um, from from one side of the transistor to the other so Eventually, uh, it looks like we'll have to go to uh, more complex geometries where we have um, two gates, basically, you know, closing off the device from, from both sides. The, yeah.
0: How close are we to running into fundamental limits like the size of atoms
1: and the number of electrons in the gate? Um, well, you'll see some people talking about that. I mean, it's up, ob- you know the leakage. Oh sorry. How light Yeah. How close are we running into the atom limit? Well, in terms of the gate leakage, that's definitely the issue because there's tunneling through the gate when you only have like four atoms. But um, other things, once, once you fix the gate dielectric, I'm not too worried about it. So other people say we should have no problem going down to 20 nanometers. Most people are reasonably comfortable with the transistors. The interconnect might be more of an issue. Um, so the net result of all this is that even CMOS has st- significant static power and the power uh, is roughly proportional to the number of transistors that are powered on, and it's approaching even the dynamic power, um, you know, the power of actually doing the useful work switching the transistors. The bad thing about this is that static power increases with chip temperature, and so, you know, this is a case where positive feedback is bad because as the device gets warmer, it leaks more, dissipates more power, um, gets hotter, um, leaks more, etc. and so you get kind of this um, thermal runaway that you have to, avoid. Also, a reliability of very sol- um, small structures is an increasing problem, and, and um, high thermals are a problem for there, too. So what about voltage scaling? Well, high-performance MOS started out with 12-volt power supplies, and the m- maximum voltage has been scaling roughly as the square root of the feature size. And so power, the simple equation is CV squared F. It's a square dependence on the voltage. And the speed does go down with lower voltage that's one of the trade-offs but it's it's still increasing as a feature size so current high-performance microprocessors have 1.1 volt supplies more or less um, and that's reduced the power by two orders of magnitude in the last 24 years So how much further can we ride that wave? well be the problem is beyond a certain voltage transistors don't turn off and the ITRS uh, Roadmap projects a minimum voltage of 0.7 volts in 2018, and that's limited by threshold voltage variation, especially as you get to these. You know, it's not kind of like a, a brick wall with a number of atoms; it's more of a gradual kind of things getting worse and worse. So, one of the things is there's more threshold voltage variation as things get smaller because you're dealing with smaller numbers. Um, but high-performance microprocessors are always already at 1.1 volts, and so we've only got a factor of two and a half reduction left in the next 14 years. So it's, it's almost as if the voltage scaling goes away, um, the benefits of it. So that's kind of the bottom up. From the top down, if you look at the per chip power envelope, it's nearing air cooling limits. Okay, so we've had some chips around 100 watts. Um, I designed one chip um, 115 watts. And the problem is that now we're seeing a lot of consolidation and you know blade systems and data centers and so you know, with one new server, 1.75-inch um, in a 19-inch rack, and also blades um, plugging into a chassis, um, there's very little room left for the heat sink. And basically, when you, when you don't have a lot of room for the heat sink, it uh, increases the thermal resistance the, that you can get. And that uh, basically increases the temperature for a given power dissipation. The other thing is that the cost of the power in and the heat out over several years uh, can equal the original system cost, and it becomes a first-class design constraint. So this is a, the trends um, that Checker borkar of Intel uh, presented at a keynote in 2001, showing that if we basically just continue what we were doing design-wise during era when we had voltage scaling and try to continue that out into the future when we don't have voltage scaling, things will get uh, really crazy really quickly, so like 10,000 watts per chip. So, obviously something had to change right here. Okay, so just to talk about the power wall a little bit, I'm gonna try to put it in perspective. So, some of you probably heard about the memory wall. I think of the memory wall as kind of like this fence here. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it, but you know, and if you're a cow, it's a significant barrier um but you know people are smarter we can go up to it we can climb over it you know there's a lot of techniques you have to do it requires some work but you know it's okay it's unpleasant sometimes the power wall i think of is more like this <laughs> so things are pretty steep you're going uphill when you get to it and then things just go vertical and there's no place to grab onto so what are some Ways that people have tried to get around or push out the power wall. Um, well, one general technique is what I call uh, the Ben Franklin waste not want not for circuits, where people have put in a lot of clock gating, um, you know, low power circuit techniques, things like that. SoI, we've basically implemented a lot of pretty much all of those things um, already. There's also power efficient microarchitecture, and uh, we've seen that in the latest uh, Intel Core. Um, announcements where they go from a heavily pipeline um, design which uses more power to something with a lower clock frequency, more parallelism in units. Um, this was something pointed out by Broderson um, at Berkeley um, probably almost like a decade and a half or two decades ago that if you went to more parallel units and ran them slower, um, you could save power. But there's, there's only so much you can do by saving power. Um, at some point, you're actually going to have to burn power. And what's the best way to, to burn the power? The only thing that I think uh, is available at this point is what I call the single-threaded versus throughput trade-off. And um, if you go back to that uh, saturation diagram that I had earlier, you think about the N-cubed error or the N-squared you know, When you go farther out on the curve, you're using a lot of transistors. They're all leaking, um, but you're not getting that much benefit from them. So if you want to have efficient computation, you have to get back towards the N-cubed error so thus, I think we'll see a trend towards simpler processors with narrower issue width, shallower pipelines, and more in-order or in processors or smaller out-of-order windows. And in fact, we've, we've been seeing this um, since, since I, um, about the last year or two. It's kind of a back-to-the-future scenario um, for architecture design in terms of micro-architecture. Now, the problem is, is when you do these things, it gives you lower single-thread performance. And single-thread performance is very important for a lot of users um, you know, a lot of um, applications for a desktop or a laptop. Um, so you can't simplify the cores too quickly or uh, your competitors are going to get the market share. And the trade-offs on what to eliminate are not always obvious. So I'm just going to deal with two of them here, um, speculation and multi-threading. Speculation in hardware, I mean um, things like branch prediction. So is speculation uniformly bad? Well, no. Um, Imagine you execute down the wrong path. That would waste power. But what happens if you just stall every time you get to a branch? Besides being bad for performance, you're going to have all those transistors just sitting there leaking. So that hurts both performance and power. Um, so predicting a, a branch can actually save power, as long as your branch predictor isn't you know, this huge million transistor thing. Um, so the current amount of speculation seems excessive, but it seems like speculation is important, even going forward in these smaller cores. Um, the same thing can be said about multi threading. So, multi threading and simultaneous multi threading, that's what SMT uh, is for, is where you can be issuing instructions from different threads at the same time um, in the same cycle. Um, that increases power efficiency, but the wide issue is still power inefficient for the reasons I was talking about earlier um, in the EV8 um, kind of design. But multi threading is, is useful even in simple machines. Especially when you don't have these huge out-of-order windows to try to hide memory latency um, during cache misses, uh, transistors are still going to be leaking. So if you can execute some other thread in the meantime, um, that you know basically makes uh, good use out of that leakage power. But you might not only need two or three threads, um, and you might not need to issue instructions for multiple threads in the same cycle, like the simultaneous multi-threaded machines. So just to recap. Uh Possible future evolution in terms of the power equation, I think we're going to be seeing a power basically um, t- roughly constant um going forward, and it'd be lower you know lower would be even better um, due to system constraints. We see the voltage is roughly constant over the next fourteen years um clock frequency um I believe it's going to be not scaling with device speed, so what that means is as you um Get increases in device speed, you'll be scaling back the number of pipe stages at the same same rate. So moving from 30 pipe stages um, at 90 nanometers to 10 stages at 30 nanometers. The big thing, though, is that the capacitance, the area, needs to be repartitioned for higher system performance and power efficiency. So um, looking at the number of cores per die, uh, I think it makes sense to scale... Um, the processor complexity roughly is one over the feature size, and this is going to be rough here because again of the design reuse cost, right? So you probably want to use a core for several gener- fab generations, and so it's it's not going to be kind of a continuous curve where you ramp down the number of transistors, but you know it's going to be um, steps. This would basically take us from one core at ninety nanometers to twenty-seven per die at thirty nanometers, and. Uh, this 27 per die, you could implement things like the 46th generation, which was a dual-issue uh, pipeline machine. Now, I heard um, at the Intel Developer Forum today in San Francisco, um, the Intel CEO CTO was talking about uh, perhaps even 80 cores per die um, by 2011, but they'd have to be very simple cores. So it's a question of how simple can you go, um, because of multi-threading the number of threads per socket is going to increase even more than this. So, you know, we've moved from the clock frequency wars now to the core wars. Um, But can we, as users, efficiently use that many cores and that many threads? Well, I'm I'm an optimist, so my answer is yes, maybe with a time lag. But I think we're on the cusp of a golden age of parallel programming. And in this golden age, every major application is going to become parallel. Um, because necessity is the mother of invention. Now, how can we make use of many processors effectively? Well, a lot of applications are already highly parallel, right? So, um, Google, um, you know, serving queries on the web, uh, computational fluid dynamics, TPCC, um, but other applications are very hard to parallelize. And parallel programming is a hard and costly progra- uh, problem that people have been working um, literally for decades on. And, cherry pancake. Uh, who's a professor has some interesting guidelines where she says um, that you know basically to develop parallel code is about 10 times more expensive than serial code, and if you're developing massively parallel code, it's 100 times more expensive than serial code. Where massively parallel might be something like uh, IBM Blue Gene L, which has now over 131,000 processors. So maybe there's a, s- a square root dependence in uh, number of programmers with number of processors or something like that, but it's not. It's not good. You'd, we'd like something more like linear. Um, other people have been pro- proposing um, doing large amounts of speculation in software, but then you just kind of push the power inefficiency up a level. I think the really key thing in de- determining what works is going to be power efficiency. And so if you're executing a bunch of threads speculatively, and you have to throw away that work, then you know it's just like doing aggressive branch prediction or out-of-order execution in the core, um, it's it's not a good thing to do in terms of power efficiency. So uh, this is a slide I've added since the micro-keynote based on the feedback that everyone always gives me from the last slide, which is, um, you know, know, what are you thinking, you know, it's a hard problem, why didn't it happen a decade ago when people first uh, were really looking at this in earnest, for example, at, at Stanford. Um, with the Dash and Flash systems. Well, if you look at what was going on in the 90s, um, we basically had at most one processor a core per chip. And so, if you wanted to create a shared memory um, multiprocessor, um, it ta- took it basically expensive glue chips, ASICs, to connect them together. So, if you look at the system with one chip and a system with several chips, because of the complex ASICs to connect them together, you already had if you 're running a serial application on one of these processors on a complex machine, you already had worse performance um, for a given amount of money so first you take this this big hit and then if you get any parallel speed up less than linear, that made it even worse in terms of of, of efficiency uh, cost performance efficiency and um, you know it was programmed by gurus, so there was many many um, grad student hours of optimization going into the Splash 2 benchmarks, for example. So what's different now than in the 1990s? Well, in the CMP era that we're in now, the chip multiprocessor era, uh, your microprocessor will come with N processors whether you like it or not. Kay. And given a fixed cost, you're going to pay the, the same amount for that microprocessor, um, whether it had one core or N cores, because they'll all have N cores. Um, any speed up is going to look good so if you get a speed up of two from having eight cores and you have eight cores on your laptop then hey you know that's not so bad the big issue though is is getting to the programming costs so there's still a lot of work needed on tools for the masses of future parallel programmers that are going to be needed so so right now um, kind of in keeping with the <coughs> deep dive I'm going to talk a little bit about um, architecture research issues that are interesting in terms of this environment. So there's, there's a lot of issues. Um, how to wire up chip multiprocessors internally, the cores in a chip multiprocessor. What kind of memory hierarchy should it use? Um, should be kind of hierarchical. Um, basically any kind of hierarchical um, structure will have more difficulties in programming because then your programmers have to n- think about where the location is of the core on the chip multiprocessor um, for more effective sharing. And that will drive up the programming cost and the difficulty. Um, so you'd like kind of a flat uh, har- um, interconnection network, but that might not be possibly t- uh, technology. Uh, how to build the cores. Uh, I'm going to talk in more detail about um, two of the, these three ideas um, because I've been involved in those. First is heterogeneous CMP design. So having uh, different kinds of processors making up the, the um, the um, chip multiprocessor. Some big ones, some small ones, and having kind of transparent migration in software. Conjoined core CMPs, and I'm not going to have a separate slide on this, but I think what's also very interesting is having stacked DAI. There's been some interesting papers recently, both on the technology side and the architecture side. The upcoming asplos conference, there's a paper on um, stacking DRAM um, underneath the basically the processor chip And so if the DRAM is low enough power and the processor chip is up against the heat sink, and you have low resistance connections through the um, DRAM chip, um, it can basically help you with the memory wall issue and also reduce the system power, because you're not going off chip. The big thing, again, is how to program. And there's work going on at Stanford and other universities and uh, industry about transactional memory systems. and then I'm going to talk a bit about power. Now, this is kind of at the micro level. There's also a bunch of system level problems which are very interesting. You know, as as the computers keep getting smaller, you know, we're down from like one U um, to you know several processors on a blade. Um, we've got a lot more things to interconnect in a data center. So cluster interconnects are a problem. You know, managing all these different system images is a problem. Availability, uh, if you're trying to run a r- large problem on a machine with 131,000 processors, you know what happens when one of them goes bad? One of them will go bad pretty frequently compared to the job size of some of those machines. Um, security, things like that. Those are beyond the scope of this talk, um, but all very interesting problems. Increasingly, what we're seeing is that hardware-software trade-offs kind of that are covered by the ASPLOS conference, um, which is going to be held in San uh, Jose, in a month are increasingly important so it's not just hard work can do it or software can do it but you know, teamwork is required and so that's one reason why ASPLOS is moving to an annual schedule so uh, I'm going to talk about a few things that we're working on at HP uh, some in partnership with uh, academic partners uh, the first is heterogeneous chip multiprocessors and there's a overview article on it in uh, the November computer, November 2005 computer magazine uh, by Rakesh Kumar et al. And um, companies like to call the same thing different things when they work on it so it sounds like new. Um, So we called it heterogeneous. Other companies call it asymmetric, non-homogeneous, and synergistic, Um, see if you can match the company names. what we were looking at is using a single instruction set architecture versus multiple instruction set architectures and so then it'd be easy for the operating system to move applications from say a a large high power core um, to a small low power core depending on how the application was behaving and if we had that um, we'd have many benefits both in terms of power um, throughput and uh, mitigating Amdahl's law um, which I'm. I'm going to talk at on uh, the following slides. So, um, Grachowski et al. from Intel in an ICCD um, 2004 paper looked at the potential power benefits of asymmetric CMPs, um, further voltage scaling, more clock gating, and controlling speculation, um, basically predicting branches only when you have higher confidence in them, and basically stalling when you don't, things like that, and they. Sh- Showed that asymmetric CMP had the biggest potential power um, reduction going forward. Obviously, there's been a lot of clock gating and it saves a lot of power already, but they figured you could get um, at most two x further um, from the gating. And the voltage scaling um, runs, you know, is spread over 18 years, where the asymmetric CMP could give you a quick fix in in one generation. Amdahl's law um, is pretty famous. Uh, parallel speedups are limited by the serial portions, right? So if you've got a code that's 90% um, parallel, um, well, let's say 50% parallel, and a 50% serial, even if you make the 50% um, parallel portion infinitely fast, you're only going to speed up the program by a factor of two. Right? So, but the heterogeneous cores can kind of give you a way out of this. right? So if you think in terms of power efficiency, you can use the big core for the serial portions. So then you're only using one core. You can dump everything into that one section of code, all the power, and use many small cores for the parallel se- uh, sections. Now, those are more power efficient. So overall, you can get both the kind of performance advantage from having the serial portion on the big core and um, more power efficiency from having all the small cores to the parallel section. So they built a discrete four-way SMP and ran one socket at regular voltage and the three other at a low voltage. So this wasn't a very big test. this was basically limited by the fact that their platform only was a four-way machine. and so um, you know in real life, you'd, you'd have much m- many more of these smaller cores, you know like with the IBM cell, you'd have you know eight synergistic processors and, and one master processor. Uh, but even so, they achieved a 38 percent wall clock speed up using a fixed power budget. Okay, so conjoined core is another idea um, that um, Rakesh Kumar and um, Dean Tolson from UC San Diego and I uh, have written about. And so the idea there is ideally um, um, you want to provide for the peak needs of any single thread without multiplying the cost of that peak need by the number of cores. So. To execute a program, most of the time you d- you don't benefit from a highly parallel microarchitecture, but sometimes you know you can p- get benefit from it. So you don't want to have basically the, the peak, basically core, where it's designed for all the different possible applications, um, their peak needs, because um, it's overdesigned, and uh, for the average case. So the idea here is um, share basically resources that provide the peak performance that you need for a core. So um, it's not replicated. And that can give you a more efficient design. So uh, what we showed in our our micro um, paper was that you could get a huge core area savings, close to 50%, um, if you include the crossbar area in the calculation. And the slowdown for sharing things like the uh, uh, floating point unit, the instruction cache, the data cache, and the interconnect uh, interface was only on the order of 10%. And that's if you're running in this experiment on an eight core CPU where they were sharing in pairs. If you're only running four threads, you know, there's basically almost no downside from sharing um, because there's no contention for the shared unit. Now, moving up to a, a much higher level, um, there's also, it's important to have optimizations at the data center level. Um, what we're seeing now is that the power. Um, is going up dramatically a rack of uh, computers and data center from the 7 kilowatt range uh, up to 30 kilowatts or more, even like 55 kilowatts. And so dealing with this is uh, very difficult. Um, And it's also making front page news. Um, This was an article in the Wall Street Journal um, last year. And uh, I think you've probably also seen um, pictures from the air taken of the Google data centers up by the Columbia River or they can make use of the uh, cheap electric power and the cooling and all that kind of stuff, the big cooling towers. So uh, we've we've got a group working on that at HP um, that have done 3D modeling of of data centers. And by arranging the workload in the data center, you can optimize the the power. Um, Based on what they have today, um, they can save 25%, and um, they're looking to save even more going forward. So it looks like I've got uh, some time for this last s- section. End at 5.15? 5.30. Uh, well, I'm going to end early then. Well, that's good. can Yeah. OK. So uh, this is kind of my pet theory on the evolution of computer architecture ideas. So my conjecture is that um, looking back over computer you know, design history, there's no such thing as a bad or discredited idea in computer architecture, only one applied at the wrong level or at the wrong time. And I'm going to give some examples of those. Um, um, and it fits in with the evolution idea of reusing and recycling. So um, the examples I have are SIMD data flow, high-level language architectures, capabilities, and vectors. So SIMD was an efficient way of computing proposed in the late 60s, and we saw machines like the 64 processing element ILIAC 4 that was operational in 1972 at NASA. Problem with that, it was very difficult to program, and the peak performance was much higher than the sustained performance. Later on, there was research at at HP by uh, Ruby Lee and her colleagues um, on extensions to the the PA risk. And um, then Intel adopted the MMX architecture, where basically a 32-bit word is split into four 8-bit chunks. And you can use those, for example, like RGB and alpha in graphics. Um, So that's basically just making efficient use of a larger word size for small parallel data that is operated on in parallel. And um, it's primarily used in libraries or specialized code, so you don't have to worry about programming it as much. Um, It's kind of hidden from the user. And it only has a very small increase in hardware, like 1%. So we took something that was basically unsuccessful, and we made the idea successful by implementing it in a different time in a different context, in a different way. Now, data flow was widely researched in the late 80s as a way of building uh, uh, processors. And there are lots of problems. They're very complicated machines. They often came with a new programming model. Um, but what we've seen recently um, in the last 10 years is we've got out of order execution machines like the Pentium 4 and are kind of a limited form of data flow, and like EV6 from, from uh, DEC and Compact. So basically, the issue queue issues instructions when the operands are ready. That's kind of a data flow kind of thing. But it keeps the same instruction set architecture. So you don't need to have a new compiler or anything like that. And it keeps the same programming model. Um, it's still complex internally, but it's hidden from users. Okay. So what about high-level language architectures? Um, that was a very popular research topic in the late 70s and early 1980s, there was kind of a rallying cry, closing the semantic gap. The programming languages you know, dealt with these um, at then, which seemed like really high level things like um, Fortran. And um, you know, the computers were executing all these uh, bit streams. And so there was this semantic gap between them. And there were a few attempts, actually it goes back to the early 70s, to um, implement um, higher level stuff in hardware, like the snowball machine um, symbol. Um, But it didn't work out very well. The machines uh, ended up being slow. Uh, But nowadays, we have Java interpreted in software, just-in-time compilation. It gives us portability, and the performance loss that we see doesn't matter for some applications, and it's a key enabler in many, many things. So capabilities, um, again, dredging up history, were a popular research topic in the 70s, and the uh, Intel 432 of the Oricon group uh, implemented capabilities in hardware. So for every memory reference it was tagged with, you know, what it could do. The problem here is it had very poor performance. And there had been a lot of research into capabilities, but when the 432 wasn't successful, it, it uh, kind of killed the field. But nowadays, you know, security is increasingly important and capabilities at a file system level combined with standard memory protection models um, Provide much less overhead but can give you a lot of this functionality. Another way of getting um, capability um, like features is having virtual machine support where you're not actually running on the, the machine or you don't have the full privileges. Um, and virtual machine support is again one of these ideas that um, was very popular kind of early on, kind of stagnated for a while, and, and now seems to be really taking off. Can you, can you define exactly what capability is? Yeah,
0: capability
1: is. Um, you have some descriptor which says what kind of memory you can reference. Um, uh, that was the way it was implemented, like in the 432. And so you'd have to first, in order to do a memory reference, then you have to like look up the descriptor and figure out. You know, it's m- more complicated than standard address protection. Okay. So just some ideas, lessons from the my idea evolution theory, is don't be afraid to look at past ideas that didn't work out. Um, because they might be a good source of inspiration. And some ideas that didn't work out in the past might be successful if reinterpreted at a different level, place, or time, when they can be made more evolutionary than revolutionary. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, the power wall is here. It's the wall to worry about. And you have to think, basically, when you're making trade-offs in the system design, you have to keep that foremost in your mind. It has dramatic implications for the industry, um, from the transistor all the way through the data center. We need to reclaim past efficiencies and scale back microarchitectural complexity to get more efficient uh, cores. And I believe that this power wall will usher in a golden age of parallel programming. Now, this isn't to say that there's a lot of um, there's not a lot of open research to do, both in architecture and especially in programming, um, but um, we may want to look at some previously discarded architecture ideas um, um, to give us inspiration uh, in our current predicaments. OK. Thanks for your attention. That's the end of my talk.
0: So what we'll do now is we'll stay online and take questions.
1: OK. Don't all raise your hands at once. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah? Exactly
0: what contributions do you see the parallel
1: uh, processing making through the power wall? Uh, well, basically, you know, the idea is, you know, we've seen with the dual core designs and the quad core designs, instead of making the core ever more complicated, which has got the low efficiency, um, you want to move back, you know, along that curve and make each core more efficient. So you have to be reasonably effective in your parallelization, right? So. Um, I kind of glossed over it earlier. If you're only getting a 2x speed up from four cores, then you know if you powered, you know, if you're using all four cores but you know only getting a 2x speed up, then you're wasting some leakage power there and perhaps dynamic power. So it's actually a, a very complicated problem. But uh, hopefully you'll get um, power efficiency there by having the simpler cores. Quantitatively,
0: it can be a significant improvement
1: in your Right. Power. Right, by a, a factor of like, or six. Yeah?
0: We sort of alluded to this a little bit, um, but how do you see sort of the um, you know, recent resurgence of virtual machines affecting computer architecture evolution or other way Yeah,
1: yeah so I guess I should re- repeat the question. So, what do I see about the current research in virtual machines? Well, I think there's a lot of good things happening now with. Um, both major microprocessor vendors, you know, AMD and, and Intel, about adding support um, for virtual machines into their architecture. You know, IBM had it, you know, f- way early on with 360, but um, you no, know, and, and we're seeing it in stages. So, you know, uh, initially it's just fixing the problems where you have privilege sensitive instructions, which act differently if you're running in privileged mode or not, and it uh, caused troubles with virtualization. So they're, they're fixing the basic kind of things and. Now we're going to see a second wave, AMD's already announced this, where they add support (coughs) for uh, virtual I.O. and having I.O., memory management units, I.O., M.M.U., things like that. Um, uh, AMD's also talked about additional support for um, virtualization of of virtual memory with uh, page table support, things like that. So I think there's a lot of really exciting things that can happen at a system level when virtual machines are ubiquitous. Now, n- we might not have them uh, ubiquitous in all situations. So if you're going to be running you know, some giant scientific simulation, uh, you probably won't want a virtual machine. They don't even like having operating systems in the way, practically, on those machines, because the operating system noise and various other problems. So, but I think for the majority of users, um, it opens up a lot of potential benefits. Yeah.
0: Well, it doesn't see saying much about how these interconnects for parallelism are actually supposed to work. I mean, we have historically two things have worked shared memory multiprocessors and fairly loosely coupled clusters, and everything in between has been a commercial disaster. Right. Um, and we're about to find out if that's going to be true for the PlayStation 3, and it'll take down Sony. Um, the, the feeling in the games community seems to be that. Uh, it may be possible to program the thing, but it's going to cost you an extra year or two time to market. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I, see, I I realize you can build the hardware, but it looks like you know, building them, they will come. How do you make something programmable? I mean, is there something that people can actually stand to program?
1: Right. right. Well, uh, I won't exactly repeat the question because I think it'll be obvious in the answer. But I think your your point of having the two successful models being the cluster computation. And the shared memory multiprocessor. I'm, I'm hoping that we can limit it to just that. And it may be that um, um, the other things wouldn't work anyway. But that makes it simpler to program if you only have to deal with two levels of abstraction. So, for example, for the cluster based computing, you can have MPI to communicate between clusters. Shared memory, there's a bunch of things, you know, OpenMP, things like that. Um, so, what I want to avoid uh, is having, you know, Various levels, you know, like having, you know, somewhat shared, me- you know, memory that's shared but far away, you know, all these kinds of things. So hopefully, if we have all the cores on one chip, and we have more of a dance hall architecture, and we have fast interconnects between, maybe you have four sockets on a blade. In a, in a coherency domain, we can kind of keep it more or less to those two levels for programmers because that's already uh, complex enough. So that answer your question?
0: Oh, I, I thought you were proposing more things, no, you know, like
1: a return to
0: hypercubes or you know the bpm butterfly or machines with big interconnect architectures or infiniband or
1: well if, if you look at what's been happening in the industry there is now a push towards lower latency ethernet switches for example there's a couple of vendors uh, fujitsu and fulcrum which have very low latency uh, switch chips there's a push towards higher radix switch chips uh, fujitsu went from 12 port the fulcrum's 24 port the uh, Grey Widow, which uh, Black Widow, which was recently announced, is like a 64 radix. Um, Bill Daly was um, consultant on that. So, um, you know, there's there's work on reducing the interconnect latency and being able to span larger connections and machines. But hopefully, we can just keep it down to kind of that, that cluster computation with things like MPI, you know, RDMA, things like that, and the shared memory that we don't have to introduce kind of a third model for programmers to worry about because Dealing with two models is already very taxing. Yeah. Uh, the last I uh, saw, Intel was um, talking about on their four-core uh, chip having uh, pairs of core shell, uh, share L2s. So there'd be two L2 caches uh, for the four cores. So this is moving a little bit in the direction you, that you're uh, not enthusiastic about it. I'm not particularly enthusiastic about it either. Right, so it's a question of, how, you know, how much is that noticeable by the program or not? I mean, I think for four... Explosion
0: in different architectures. Yeah, basically <laughs>
1: having, if you have a four-core machine, I guess I'll re- repeat the question, having um, an L2 cache shared between pairs of cores. I mean, I mean sharing is good for a lot of reasons, um, and it's hard to build completely flat structures. I mean, the Niagara has eight cores uh, with a crossbar, but that's kind of the most you can do, I think. So, uh, yeah, but as long as it's not something where the programmer, it's big enough where the programmer will have to start thinking about it. Okay, yeah. I have a question about the HP lab in general. So um, are you, how close are you to a product or is this very fundamental research, what you're doing in the lab, architecture lab? Uh, Well, we we actually have a a range of things going on, so we have some things we're actually working with customers on paralyzing their problems and um, we have some stuff that's that's, uh, very far out, you know, like five to ten years that we're looking at. So we're, you know, it's called a portfolio, you know, there's a lot of um, emphasis on good management and all that kind of stuff, so you want a portfolio of research products with different durations. Just like your bond you know, portfolio, different durations and bond <laughs> So, Yeah. So
0: my question is about the HP lab um, as well. I was mm-hmm. wondering if you're looking into um, any
1: alternate forms of computing, like uh, quantum computing or anything like that? It seems uh, like you're getting marginal returns on, um, with you know, increasing complexity. Yeah, there, there is a, a group called quantum science research at HP Labs, and they're looking at um, things that are very far out. So they're looking at nanotechnology. There's some people doing some quantum theory kind of things. Um, But it's it's not a huge effort. It's, again, again fits in with the whole whole portfolio (coughs) idea. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your attention.
0: For information on other online Stanford seminars and courses, please visit study.stanford.edu. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.